What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. What is up guys? This is another episode on All The Smoke with Strength with on stream. <laughs> so guys, it's been a while since we recorded a podcast. We got our man, Cl- Mr. Cliff Wilson here, amazing individual that, that broke out over uh, putting in the work, doing it day in, day out. He's not only a pro natural, natural bodybuilder, but from the looks of it, do you have your own supplement company now? Is that something new? No, no. Uh, I, I came on as a uh, sponsored athlete with um, one of my better friends. He just started a company. And so I just came on with him. Uh, it's called Fat Muscle. Um, awesome. And uh, yeah, it, I, 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 you know, it, it, it's definitely good to be with somebody whose company that you're actually friends with too, you know? Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself besides that. Uh, who you are, not even about pro natural bodybuilding at all, although you can do that as well. A coach, your person, uh, family, dogs, animals, fishes, whatever, man. Tell us all about you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for those that don't know me, uh, I, I have been coaching for about 12 years now. Um, you know, mo- <clears throat> the first year I would say was less seriously coaching, more just kind of dabbling. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's um, it's something that I kind of just fell into. Um, when when I first started, I was largely just um, uh, helping people at the gym. Um, there were a couple of guys at my gym that were interested in doing a show, and I just helped them for free. So to be honest with you, I didn't even um, set out with the goal of coaching as a business. Um, I I I I wasn't formally educated. I consider myself very much of kind of a nerdy guy. I like to study on my own, but I was really just doing it for my own curiosity and my own bodybuilding career. And then um, and then uh, when I had some people approach me and ask, I didn't charge them. I probably didn't charge like the first six or seven people I prepped. Um, and then, uh, finally, when I got more than six or seven, I was like, okay, I'm eating up a lot of time here. I should probably start charging you guys. I think I, I, I you know, if you want to know how little thought I put into making this a career, I think like when I started charging everyone, I was like, let's just do $50 a month. And, <laughs> and they were like, okay, cool. And, um, and, uh, so yeah. And, you know, I started off that way and then eventually I picked up so many people. I was like, okay, you know, this is this is a, a profession now. So, um, yeah, I'm sitting here after about 12 years and, um, I've been lucky to work with some unreal, uh, amazing athletes. Um, you know, I, I've coached well over a hundred people to pro cards now, um, uh, something like 80 or 90 pro titles and, uh, like 13 world champions I've gotten to work with. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's kind of like a dream come true. Cause I, I didn't really anticipate making a living and I don't even work with general population. I purely work with competitors, um, you know, from bodybuilding to bikini. So Cliff, you know, I think the one fascinating thing that we kind of talked about previously before hitting that record button is that time period of getting to where you are now at the early stages that you kind of talked about it didn't really expect it to kind of happen how it is but from kind of the principle of the one book that be so good they can't ignore you that's kind of sound that's kind of what it sounds like that hey you were so good at what you were doing you couldn't ignore the fact that hey this is a valuable option for you for a career but tell us about that i guess that pivot and that shift in that career of becoming an actual full-time coach. What was it like and what made you kind of almost have that aha moment? Okay. Hey, like let's put all of our eggs in one basket and start doing this. And you could, could you say what you were doing before too? I'm actually curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, I was, um, I was a little bit lost in what I wanted to do before. Um, so for, for, well, this becomes pertinent later. So, um, when I went to college, I played, uh, basketball, at a division one school, you know, so I was kind of just focused on basketball. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like I wasn't really there to follow my career ambitions because I just didn't know, you know what I mean? I didn't know what I liked besides basketball. I was kind of playing off the idea of maybe being a basketball coach one day. Um, but, um, you know, I, I kind of, uh, so after a year and a half though, I was like, you know, um, I, I was like, I don't think I want to be a basketball coach one day. You know, I, I had kind of dabbled in it and I didn't really care about it. It, it wasn't as exciting as I had planned it to be. So, um, so I actually was a college dropout <laughs> and I bounced around from 
from some jobs. Like I was trying things out. Um, I did manage, I was training at this point, you know, I was still super skinny. I hadn't competed or anything, but, um, I did end up man becoming like a general manager of a couple of GNCs. Um, just cause you know, I started at the bottom and just kind of worked my way up. And then, um, and, uh, then I, while I was doing that, I was also working as, um, as, uh, on the side as a landscape, uh, I would kind of start my own landscaping company. And then, um, <clears throat> And then uh, I kind of saw an opportunity, like my family had always owned restaurants, you know, and um, I saw an opportunity to sell my landscaping company. Um, and it was like a real modest size, but it was enough to afford like a down payment um, to get like a cafe that was kind of focused on more like healthy, you know, type eating. And I did that and we were going pretty well for a few years, but then the, um, the 2008 financial collapse happened and that sank us pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> so, um, so when I got into coaching, I had, after my cafe closed, I had kind of lost everything and I was, I just needed a job, right? I was like, I need money. So I was actually working, this is hilarious. I was working as a manager of a video store um, when I did this and it was kind of just like a placeholder job. You know what I mean? But, um, I just started coaching on the side and, um, the coaching though, if we get into it, I didn't intend on making it a career. Um, at the time back in like 2009, right. Um, there was no Instagram. Um, you know, Facebook was, was even kind of, you know, newer at that time and I wasn't using it. Um, and most everybody that was prepping at the time had like PhDs and master's degrees. Um, I mean, almost everybody. And I didn't even have my bachelor's degree. So I didn't really feel qualified to, you know, I, I, I had always been really nerdy and studied on my own. I, I was, I was rabid about studying, to be honest with you, but it was really just for my own career. It wasn't to like make a career out of it. Um, I just wanted to be a better bodybuilder and no more. And so, um, so anyway, I didn't feel that I was qualified to coach because I didn't have my master's degree or my PhD. And, but, um, a couple of guys at my gym knew that I had competed and they, they just said, Hey, you know, we would like to do it if you'd be willing to help us. And so I was like, sure, we'll do it. And I did it for free. Um, and, um, so the funny thing is that, um, uh, I didn't know if I was qualified, but I knew I knew more than they did. Right. <laughs> and so, um, I, I didn't realize at the time that a lot of the things that I were doing were very different than what other people at the time were doing. Um, because I was kind of, I wasn't paying attention to what other people were doing. I was doing my own thing, which was a blend of my own experiences and a blend of what I was reading in the research. I wasn't even reading like a ton of like bodybuilding magazines or on forums or anything like that. Um, so, um, so I brought them into, uh, Mr. Illinois, uh, competition, natu Mr. Natural Illinois. And, um, my, one of the guys won the novice division and the other one, uh, won, um, the overall title won Mr. Illinois. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because at the time you guys know Lane Norton. Yeah. Lane is Lane had already been established for years at that point. Like Lane's been around forever. You know? <laughs> um, and, uh, Lane had a client, uh, in the show and, um, he was super nice. He was like, you know, he already had his like PhD at that point. And he came up to me and he was just like, Hey, he goes, you know, I don't see many people get people as shredded as you just got both of your clients. And he just kind of said, uh, he goes, he goes, if you do work like that, you could, you know, make a lot of money doing this one day <laughs> was his exact words. Um, and I was like, you know, and it, it did kind of give me a little bit of the go ahead in terms of like, um, somebody who took the time to get his PhD doesn't have a problem with me doing this. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I was like, after, from that point on, I was like, let's just see what this can become. Um, and I started taking on people that were interested. Um, I did have encounter some people that had that higher education, have some problems with me doing it. Um, I caught, I caught a lot of resistance to be honest with you in the early days. But, um, after that first show, I kind of knew what my capabilities were. And I was just kind of like, screw all you guys, I'm going for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and then, then I kind of just never looked back. I think that's the really important thing too, uh, before is, is even Adam has had pushback and he has a master's he's going into his PhD, but he's had pushback because, because of his age, someone older than him. And it's like, listen, man, like if you're going to someone, 
you're going to them because you believe that they can help you. And if you don't believe that they can help you, then don't go to that individual. Because even from your perspective, like what you just said was perfect. Like you knew that you could do it. So like whatever they were saying, it didn't matter. Like you you either want me to get you to a title or you don't like it's, it's that simple. What was, yeah. uh, what were some key things though, that really drove your education to get you to where you were? Like, was it um, forms? Was it books? What was it? You know, it, so this, this sounds crazy, but, um, I, so I was, I was super poor at the time. So like, um, you know, I'll, even searching a lot of stuff, but honestly reading everything, anything I could get my hands on, I would read books. Um, and, and the interesting thing is I was, I was pulling information from everywhere that it's like nothing even terribly sticks out in my head. I would read good books. I would read bad books. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, I would read, I would search, um, Google book search. Right. Um, so like when I was first beginning my, my own education, um, I think that, um, I was, uh, you know, because when you start, there are concepts you don't understand, right? You're reading something and you're like, I don't know what this word is. I don't know what this concept is. So then you Google and then you try to follow down that rabbit hole. Um, <clears throat> and um, oftentimes I would try to look in Google book search and just, you know, you can usually read pages of books for free and I would just read excerpts from books and I would get, um, you know, everybody always wants to know what the best books are for something. Um, and usually I tell people like, sometimes don't even worry about what the best books are. Read the bad stuff too, because I think it is super valuable to learn to vet information. Um, I, I think sometimes I learn as much from bad information as I do from good. Um, and so, um, you know, one, one analogy that I often use is that um, as a self, uh, for self-directed education, I think there are advantages and disadvantages compared to like a more formal education. So formal education, right, is that, um, the information has been vetted and laid out for you. Um, and so every time you learn a new piece of information, um, they tell you what that piece of information is connected to. It's laid out for you. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is advantageous. Um, but the negative part of it is that um, sometimes you don't have to spend as much time pondering that information or you can't even. Um, and because you don't even need to know what it's connected to. Uh, because it, or think about what it will be connected to because it's laid out for you. But when you have like a self-directed education, um, I can't know what to study next until I've considered all angles of this information I have right now. And then I can kind of see where it takes me. You know what I mean? Um, the, the way I describe it and um, <clears throat> the way I describe it sometimes is that uh, I think sometimes people that have uh, higher levels of education than myself, and I'll still see them struggle in coaching. Do you know what I mean? That I've seen people that have really high levels of education, but then they can't seem to make it work in coaching. Um, one of the ways I always put it is like, if I'm sitting down with a puzzle in front of me, right? Um, <clears throat> and the person next to me is sitting down with the higher education and sitting down with their puzzle, they may have every puzzle piece that they need to put that puzzle together, whereas I may only have half sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, they may have more pieces of information, but, um, if, if I'm better at putting these pieces together, I can still put half of the pieces together and tell you what the picture is. If they have every puzzle piece, but can't put enough of the pieces together, they can't tell you what the picture is. Do you see what I mean? No, I like that. I honestly thought you were going to say, well, I'm going to find the other pieces of the puzzle while he's got them all. Because again, well, that's how it seems like your mind's working. Like if I have a specific concept i can take it in different angles and kind of find out or educate myself however i want to because it's on me to do whatever i want to do yeah well you're always searching for more puzzle pieces right it's like you know we're always trying to get gather more puzzle pieces but um i'm like a firm believer where i don't like to move on to the next piece until i know how what i have in front of me fits together if that makes sense mm -hmm. um i i i don't I, I am, I'm fully against, um, mindless fact and information seeking without being able to model it together with everything in a holistic manner. I don't like using the word holistic cause it kind of has like this hippy dippy vibe to it. You know what I mean? But I, I want to use it in like the really, um, literal sense, like how everything fits together. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm a big believer in like, I learned something and then I really ponder how it fits together with everything 
within the larger picture before I even t- try to move on to something new. No, I, I like that. And I think that's how a lot of people should kind of think rather than just learning something to learn it. But what is it actually going to provide you and maybe even your client or whoever you're working with? And I think this is a good segue. So I think you would agree. And I think all, all of us kind of agree. Coaching isn't a science, but I think it's more of an art. What is your, I guess, go-to factors that you think are the most critical to focus on in the sport specifically of bodybuilding? Um, more as a coach or as a competitor, would you say? Let's go as the coach for right now. Okay. Um, yeah, it, you are right. And, and kind of just what I said, I do think that the art um, prospect of it is being able to put those pieces of information together and also trust with what, be able to study nuance in, in real life. Um, uh, sometimes I think people that are very scientific minded can get into the trap. You know, it's not like, it's not like they're trying to do it, but they can get into the trap of what I call like mindless fact seeking. Um, and you know, it's like, if you don't see how it fits together with the bigger picture, it's, it's problematic. Um, and so, um, if we're talking from a coaching standpoint, if we're going to talk about, I want to talk about like the more, um, solid foundations in terms of what makes a good coach. I think, um, First and foremost, if you're going to crunch some numbers, focus on the bigger things first. So like I do have a book, I do have a book that I wrote and um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the body, the bodybuilding book that I wrote um, and it has good reviews and everything. But the only critique I ever get from the book is some people say, well, you spent too much time on how to calculate the length of the prep, you know, like the length of the prep that, um, like how long someone should prep for. And um, interestingly enough, I spent so much time on that because it's the thing that people most often get wrong. Um, so like when, when we're going to talk about art versus science of, of bodybuilding, um, I think sometimes people, if we're talking, they're too scientific, if, if there is such a thing, but they, they don't identify the major like filters to success. Um, you know, people that are really scientific minded, Um, and I consider myself a really scientific minded person, but I try to like, not let it blind me from larger things as well. And so like, you know, um, the science of bodybuilding is, you know, what is, what is an ideal rep scheme? You know, how many, how much volume should a client have? You know, uh, how do I calculate macros and calories and things like that? But, um, those aren't the major filters to success for a bodybuilding client. Um, how long to prep for a show is like the first filter. You know what I mean? Like um, if somebody has um, a lot of times people still grab arbitrary number of weeks out, you know, Hey, why don't we prep up? looks like we should prep about 25 weeks. Um, they haven't really sat down and actually calculated like a rate of loss, like how, how many pounds and they take and take it seriously, by the way, like how many pounds on average will we need to lose per week? to get you ready by show day. And I have pretty strict rules. I mean, I've had some people that I consider to have world champion level talent and genetics. And if they want to lose at a rate of loss that is too quickly for what I perceive to be ideal, I'm like, Hey, you know, you're going to need to find a different coach. Um, I don't compromise on those things. I I will, I I would, you know, for me as a coach, the worst thing I could do is put someone on stage that has world champion level quality and they look like not ready. You know what I mean? Now, can you, can I pause you there and you explain to our listeners why it is so important to do that? And the, I guess the consequences of losing too quickly, because I think again, Chris and I, and specifically me, we work with a lot of gen population, but for them, it's like, Hey, quicker, the better. But again, a lot of the principles we take, I would say is from the sport of bottom because of the discipline, because of the patience that you guys have. And the, again, for you guys to be able to continuously do it over a long duration of time. That's what I think a lot of the gen- general population doesn't understand. They think it's a, Hey, it's a short 12, 24, 25 weeks that, Hey, I'm getting there and I can stay there, but that's not really how it goes. But I guess, can you explain the reasoning of why you don't want it to happen so quickly? Yeah. I mean, so when you lose weight more quickly, the um, muscle loss becomes more likely first and foremost. Um, And so that is obviously like we fight hard for, I mean, even ounces of muscle sometimes as natural competitors. Um, But um, so you don't want to give away a pound or two of muscle because it's significant on stage. And then um, it does cause 
uh, faster metabolic adaptations. So this is where the science comes in, right? Um, like, you know, you, it causes faster metabolic adaptations and their metabolism slows down more. And then you have to lower calories further, which then causes more muscle loss. You know what I mean? More performance decreases in the gym as well. Um, and then, you know, this is something that's a little more observational, but um, when somebody loses too quickly, I don't know if this is a byproduct of muscle loss. I can't say for certain, but they just never seem to be able to achieve the certain tightness that, um, that somebody who loses more slowly can. Um, my, my estimation, I could be wrong, but my estimation is that this is a byproduct of muscle loss plus like losing too quickly, causing more just total body inflammation. And so you're like, you always have this slight filmy puffy look. Um, and you know, I don't know, but it's not quite, um, the same look as when somebody has lost more slowly. And so, um, you know, I take, I take things like rate of loss. So, so I guess the thing is like, um, you know, somebody that the science of bodybuilding is, you know, what I just rattled off, like the, the physiological problems of dieting too quickly. Right. But then if I only look at those individual pieces of information, right. You don't know I mean? if I say, Oh, you know, losing too quickly does this and that, but then I can't really like connect these pieces together and say, well, the end result is I need to be extremely diligent about calculating rate of loss. Um, and, uh, you know, so th that's kind of what I mean. It was like the art is the, or the science is these pieces of information. The art is putting them together and then know how to like practically apply. And, and I think it's important to realize like when you were, when you were originally looking through this information, you were probably utilizing a rate that might be different from what you're using now. It's just times have changed knowledge has become more available and you've just gained experience both personally and educationally. What are some big changes that you were doing compared to now that you were like, once you found it out, you're like, wow, this is going to make a game changer. Um, you know, I, 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 I've been pretty similar on my rate of loss for the entire time I've been doing it. Um, <clears throat> I didn't realize that I was doing a lot of things before the the science had even showed it because um, I'm a really big fan of like, so I'm a big fan of practical reasoning. So I would say like oftentimes <clears throat> I don't, um, I don't, even if something is in a study, I don't just accept it. Um, and I should mention that like, even though, you know, I'm not a scientist, um, I try to think like one. My, my dad is actually a PhD plant pathologist and uh, epidemiologist. Um, so he, he does, you know, both and he has backgrounds in both. And so um, my thinking patterns, I've learned quite a bit from him. And my dad is always like, he always stressed to me as like, you know, I'm a scientist, so I know how imperfect science is. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the biggest thing is I think that, um, I mean, very pertinent during these times of just accepting whatever a scientist tells you is in my opinion, foolish, um, because, uh, nobody ever knows for sure, you know? And so, um, I would say the biggest thing that I changed. So, um, early on when I was coaching, um, hit cardio was extremely popular. Um, you know, I mean, it was all the rage and all the studies were showing that it was really popular. And so, um, I did kind of make the mistake of like, I'm jumping on this, you know, it's st the studies are showing it's popular or, you know, it's more effective, right. Than lower intensity cardio, you know, you get the, the post cardio after burn and, you know, things like that. And you get to do less total time of cardio. So I was doing that. And then, um, 2011, 2012, 2012, um, I was finally like the, I didn't like how people were looking as I would add hit. Um, and I was like, this doesn't seem to be working in it. And then I kind of thought out and I was like, it doesn't make sense. Right. Um, because so this is where I say the logical reasoning comes into play because, uh, all right. So in a, in a study, you know, we maybe take an eight to 10 week study and they show that the people that do hit cardio lose more fat and retain more muscle than the people that are doing low intensity steady state. Um, so we're looking at only this like eight to 10 week bubble here. Um, <clears throat> but there's so many problems with that in that, like one, usually these people aren't extremely low body fat, right? Um, you know, you, I, every time I read a study, I try to pick it apart. You know what I mean? Like, why is this not applicable 
to what I'm doing. Um, and so, you know, so that's problematic. Um, and then also a lot of these times these people aren't trying to do like the extensive weight training that bodybuilders are doing. Um, and so, uh, when I felt like people were not looking as good when I would give them hit and I started just switching the list, low intensity, steady state cardio. Um, and it was just better. And so, you know, it kind of made sense when I thought through it logically, um, when I was, because, you know, the primary fuel source for high intensity interval training is glucose. Um, so then we run to a problem where we're trying to diet and glucose is limited, right? And glucose is our primary fuel source for weight training. Um, so we're robbing our limited, our, our very limited fuel source for weight training. So then we're, we're, so we're hindering the thing that causes us to retain muscle. And then, then on top of that, hit cardio is very mentally and physically taxing. It requires, it demands recovery. So then we're increasing our recovery load as well, which is not good. I mean, it takes, it takes practically no recovery to go for a 30 minute walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know of anybody that goes for a 30 minute walk and they're like, Oh God, I need to lay down for a couple hours, you know? Um, so, um, we're kind of hurting it from both ends in terms of performance of weight training and then recovery from weight training. So I switched and, um, you know, it was around 2012 and I caught a lot of hell. I was like, no more hit, you know, and a lot of people were like, the research doesn't support what you're saying. You know, the research doesn't back it up. And now in recent years, studies are coming out showing that, you know, I, I was right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's like, um, I think it's like just a, a matter of, I, I guess it's, uh, we, we also need to make, so some people may even call this like, so at the time people were saying it's kind of the art of bodybuilding of being able to make an observation, but, um, I don't even sometimes view it as an art. I mean, it kind of is, but, um, uh, sometimes being able to distinguish the mindless acceptance of what the research is saying versus the logical reasoning of what the research is showing and what real life is showing, if that makes sense. No, that's, that's some smoke right there, because I think that's where a lot of evidence-based coaches really lack, right? They take a, one research paper and they run with it. And I think one specific example that I can think of immediately in my mind that just happened was the hip thrust for squats. And everyone was like, Hey, if you really want to grow your, your glutes, then you should be squatting hip thrust. Eh. But if, again, it's all contents dependent. I think that's where a lot of people really struggle with almost like any, anything it's, it's just black and white, this dichotomous rigid thinking. And you have this gray that you really have to embrace. And I think what you're also implying cliff is, what about that client? What do they kind of enjoy? What do they kind of want? And that's, I think, more important than these general guidelines that we have. Um, and one of the, I think the problems, and maybe again, what you've also alluded to is science is usually behind, right? They're yeah. usually behind. And now, I think now we're starting to see that evidence that, hey, hit isn't that great. And it's really taxing. And I think, again, maybe what, three years ago, it was all about training to failure. And now we're starting to see again, hey, Maybe we shouldn't be training too fair, but close to it. So again, we can recover. And again, all these rep ranges, these load ranges and stuff like that, they're all applicable. Again, what do you want to enjoy? What are you going to be able to give all your all into? And I think that's, that's that art that we have to kind of present to our client. If I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. And, um, I, so one thing that's pretty, uh, you, you nailed it too, with the individual client, because I, I think that, um, the best clients are going to be the ones that are like, rugged individualists usually because they'll get on board with you know what you're trying to tell them so like you, you talk about the squats versus hip thrust when that was going on i would have some clients they would say like um should i do squats or hip thrusts for you know building my glutes you know what do you think is better and i say well let me ask you a question like when you do squats or hip thrusts you know if you're only doing one for the day what do you get more sore from in your glutes you know what i mean like because while, while soreness isn't always an indication of uh, muscle growth, it is definitely an indication of activation. Um, you know, so, so, so whatever is sore has been activated, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, while, while there may be a generalization that, you know, um, hip thrusts, I, I think hip thrusts will probably create, cause more people to have higher degrees of glute activation than squats. Um, not everybody, you know, some people will squat and they get sore as hell the next day in their glute area. So it's like, um, I'll just ask them, I'm like, which one, you know, that's one of my favorite questions. Which one do you feel more? You know, people will say, should I do this exercise or that exercise? I'm like, which one do you feel it more? Um, then if that's, if that's the one we're running with it. Right. 
And I think this goes back to even what we were talking about in the intro is this is a, this is a downfall of education is like this, this glute and uh, squat study that showed that squats are better than hip thrusts. Like you're saying, it really depends on the person, but a lot of the, a lot of science is narrow focused. Like the science is being done by a scientist in that field. That's an expert in that like specific topic. So they don't get to see the outside. They're sitting there trying to prove a point or they're trying to discover something new. And although that's not the approach that most scientists want to take, they're biased. It, it's, it's their field that they're trying to look further into. Yeah, yeah. I said as well as there's a lot of variables that we don't control for, or I always have the, the one of my biggest things is, hey, that's all they trained was squat or the hip thrust. There's so many other things that they're trying to, we would typically train, especially for a bodybuilder. So go ahead, Cliff, my apologies. Yeah, no, no. And, and, you know, and I think the thing is like, you know, I, I try to tell people is like, um, and, and, and I, I should be clear is like, you know, the scientific research is an amazing tool and resource because, um, you know, we can't know everything, but it's like, I, I the thing I, I am against is just the, um, acceptance of the research on face value because re- like you said research is always going to have its limitations um you know and, and i think that sometimes just being aware of what those limitations are and then reading within that context is um extremely important because you know it's like we all have to learn to vet information um and so it's like um <clears throat> you know not every study design is equal um you know some studies i'm like man these are ironclad like i can't I can't poke any holes in this. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so, um, you know, I think it's just a matter of trying to, um, and, and take one, the bits of information that science tells us and then insert it into the larger picture. So it just gets, um, it, it gets to be a factor where, um, I think that, you know, I don't think the, the self-directed education route that I took is for everybody and it has, it presents its own challenges. And I guess the thing that I'm also saying is that, um, the formal education route, um, has its challenges as well, because, you know, I think it it can kind of, um, sometimes maybe lock people into a little more rigid way of thinking. So then it's like, understand the challenges that each route represents, um, where the blind spots may be. And I'm going to speak from example is like, when, when I'm coaching or when I was, particularly when I was really newer to coaching, um, I was trying to be extremely aware of where my blind spots may be because I wasn't formally educated. You know what I mean? It's like, maybe I don't know something and I don't even know that I don't know it. And so I was really careful. Like when people would ask me a question that I was not sure of, I was really careful to be like, I don't really know. I'm not the person to ask about that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I still do that. Honestly, like sometimes I'll be on a, uh, Q and a panel or something like that. And, you know, I'll even be having like, you know, sometimes I I go on these Q and a panels and I'm like the only person without a PhD up there and uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be debating and then something will come up and that I'm not as I'm familiar with, but maybe I'm not well-versed on. And I'll just be honest. I'll just say, you know, this isn't an area I'm as well-versed on. I think I should sit this one out. Um, So I think it's just um, sometimes also checking your ego at the door (laughs) as well. Honestly, even with a formal education, I have a master's degree and it's like, I've gone through a master's degree, but I'll hear people mention stuff. And I'm like, what the heck is that? I've never, I don't know what that word is. I've never heard that word. And I am exercise science degree. Like, so like you said, you just got to keep yourself humble. But with this, with this educational uh, approach, let's dive into sort of peak week plans. I guess we can go more we can go more broad. And then as we talk, we can sort of pinpoint things out initially starting. I would love to hear more about how you determine, because like you said, it's something that a lot of people get wrong, but what are some key things that you consider when trying to determine the length of what a prep will be? Um, so the, the length of prep is, um, so did you say peak week or, 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 the length of prep, like when determining the length of prep. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll cover broad and then go more narrow as we go through the conversation. Gotcha. So length of prep is, um, I I think it's like the most important thing. It's, it's the very first thing I look at when somebody applies to work with me, what show are you choosing? Um, it's been a few years since I 
calculated it, but I decided to go through at one point and for the previous few years, calculate how many people chose a show that I thought was too soon. And the number was something like 96%. Um, you know, like in my opinion, 96% of the people that were applying with me were choosing a show that would set them up for failure. <laughs> um, and then it becomes a matter of me convincing people to do a longer show. Um, so <clears throat> the, the first thing I look at is, um, what do I think they'll need to weigh on show day? It's probably one of the most difficult parts of the whole process. Um, and I always aim lower. So like if they've competed before, that's a valuable tool because usually people that are, you know, coming to me, they, they didn't quite nail it. You know, I mean, if they completely nailed it, they wouldn't be seeking out a coach, you know what I mean? Or they wouldn't have left their other coach. Um, so, uh, if they have previous show pictures, you know, if they, if they say they weighed 165 on show day and they weren't quite there, it's easy for me to look at their photos and say, well, they were 165 here. I would guess 158. Do you know what I mean? Um, the leaner someone gets, the more accurate you can be with your determination of how close they were. Um, the most difficult thing to do is do that with a first time competitor is to like guess what their show weight should be. Um, usually in that case, I try to pitch them the idea of let's lose 15 pounds and then choose a show. Um, that's, that would be my ideal. Cause even, you know, I've been doing this 12 years and it's still very hard to determine what a first time competitor will need to weigh on stage. So anyway, I get this, I get this, um, estimated show weight and I always aim on the low end of what I think it'll be. I maybe like, will even like, I'll say my best guess is like they'll weigh 165, but then I'll maybe subtract three or four pounds from that number just to be safe. Cause it's always easy to slow things down. It's not so easy to speed them up. Um, so, uh, it's like a, it's, it, I honestly kind of run a calculation, um, is that like, I, <clears throat> I will determine what they need to weigh. So then we get to how many pounds do they need to lose? So, you know, if they, they need to lose 20 pounds, um, <clears throat> then I run a calculation where for, um, men, I don't like to exceed, I mean, preferably I wouldn't like to exceed maybe like 1.3 maybe at the, yeah, 1.3 would probably be like max, maybe 1.5, but that's even pushing it. I mean, I, I think usually most men, ideal most men a pound a week, I think pretty smooth, even number and it's doable. Um, most women, they can probably go up to 1.25 max if somebody has a crazy fast metabolism. But, um, for most women, I wouldn't like to go above like 0.75 to 0.8. Um, and so, you know, I, it's just, uh, then I just kind of run the math, you know, I divide it out, you know, for, for men, uh, you know, if they're need to lose 20 pounds, ideally I'd probably like them to do a 20 week prep. Um, and you know, I, um, I can maybe be a flexible if like, I I'm not doing the math in my head, unfortunately, but like if I was going, if I was going to do like 1.2 pounds per week, I don't know how many, how many weeks that would be off the top of my head, but, um, if they want to do 1.2 rate of loss. Maybe I could stretch it. I think if they have like a fast enough metabolism based on what they're telling me they're eating, um, then, then we can do it. But you know, if they, if they want to tell me they want to lose like 1.6 pounds per week, 1.7, I'm like, we need to choose a later show. And if they won't budge on it, I'll say, you know, I'm not, I'm not the coach for you. Um, because you know, honestly, if somebody won't see the logic that I've just laid out for them for why this is going to prevent them from being successful, the way I kind of view it is this isn't the first time that this would happen if we started working together. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if you won't pass the first filter to success, my guess is that you won't pass the other filters to success either. Now, as you continue to get closer and closer to that peak week, because from what I've always been told is you always want to be kind of ahead of that peak week or have a mock peak week. What are your, I guess, your methodologies for that specific time frame or that phase within your, your prep? Yeah, I, I do like to have people ready early. Um, the, the first time I've worked, I work with someone, I like to aim to have them ready early because I haven't worked with them before. Sometimes you don't know how somebody's body will react. Um, also I think it's better for newer competitors to be ready early for stress reduction purposes. Um, I think a lot of times like newer competitors, especially first time competitors, you have like this huge anxiety of, you know, they don't know, you know, will I be ready? You know, how will I look? And so, um, if you can have them ready early enough to remove the, will I be ready question, 
huge load off their shoulders. Somebody that's more experienced, somebody that you've worked with more, you can kind of try to hit it on the nose a little bit more. Um, but I still think being ready a little bit early is advantageous. As for um, mock peak weeks, if you are a newer coach, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I don't, I don't do it anymore because honestly, I, I've, I was just telling somebody about this the other day where I was like, you know, I, I mean, for doing it 12 years, I haven't worked with as many competitors as other people have. Um, I, I have a lot of clients that have been with me six, seven, eight years. Um, I, I have, yeah, I have, I have a lot of, I, I have good client retention rates. So in 12 years, I've only worked with about 400 people. Um, and, um, but 400 is still a lot, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so when I'm prepping somebody, when I see how their body reacts, you know, to my changes, when I see how they look after their refeed days, um, when I see even the structure of their body or even small things like how their skin texture looks, I know that sounds weird. Um, there's almost always an instance where I'm like, I've seen this before. You know, I, I've seen somebody else have these similarities and I know a good chance of what their body will require based on, you know, I peaked somebody, I mean, like I just peaked somebody this past week, uh, they're going into their peak week and, um, I put their peak week plan together and I'm like, man, it, un, metabolically structure wise, very similar to somebody I remember from 2017. And so, um, I look back and I'm like, this is what I did for this person in 2017. I had to, you know, go in and adjust some things, obviously, that I thought would be needed differently. Like, um, you know, one person had a little bit higher sodium intake and one person I think could tolerate carbs a little bit better. And so, but the general flow of the peak week is very similar because um, these guys are so similar. And so it's like, um, you know, once you gain that experience, I don't think you always need to run through mock peak weeks. I don't think I've probably run through mock peak weeks since maybe about 2015, um, unless somebody is really, uh, so after about six years of coaching, I kind of stopped doing the, the mock peak weeks, but, um, you know, I, I think that for a newer coach, extremely valuable. Like I, I would, I would do crazy stuff also where, um, I mean, it's not crazy, but it's very time consuming. So, um, I would also do things where even instead of mock peak weeks, I would, um, I would have a client do a large refeed day, right? They'd just be in their diet and then I would give them one large refeed day. So I would have them take photos of the morning of the refeed day. So when they're really flat and then one day post, one, uh, two days post, three days post. So I can watch them. Um, I would try to spill them, right? Because sometimes it's hard to identify um, what people's looks look like. Sometimes flat can look eerily similar to spilled. So sometimes I would give people a high enough carbohydrate intake where I would intentionally spill them. And then I would mark them in their folder uh, that I have on my computer with like, um, you know, this client um, spilled. So I would put the photos in there and label them spilled. Um, one day post spill, two days post spill, three day post spill. And so I can see um, how fast they clean up a spill. What does their spill look like? You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, I, I can see all of their individualized looks. And I used to do that with a lot of clients and it was very educational for me as a coach. Now for, for this mock peak week, when would you plan that throughout the process? Um, ideally three to four weeks out. Um, you don't want to do it too soon or else, you know, if they get too much leaner from the time you mock peak week, then it's going to be, um, probably not as applicable anymore because, you know, peak weeks change also the leaner someone gets. The leaner someone gets, the more sodium they can handle, the more carbohydrates they can handle. So I would say three to four weeks out, you want to allow at least a week or two between the mock peak week and the real peak week um, for just some normalcy to be remain retained. Now for that specific peak week, you know, we've had a lot of physique coaches and the one, our last individual, I was kind of surprised what he had said, but what is, I guess, is your go-to? I've heard different terms, front-loading, back-loading, and things of that nature. What is your usually go-to um, on that specific week? Um, I don't really have a necessary go-to, I would say. Um, I, I don't, well, I'll put it this way. I usually don't use front-loading. Um, <clears throat> I used front-loading for probably the first two years of my career. 
Um, but the thing I, I have some ideas on this and it's interesting cause like I have a couple of different methods of peaking people. And, um, one, one thing that I've noticed is that when you do a front load, usually people look really good when you do the load at the beginning of the week, like they get this tight look and then you bring things down a little bit and then you maybe try to refill them a little bit at the end. It's almost like that look cannot be, um, recaptured, um, I have, I, I, it's interesting. I was doing a consult. I do like Skype consults sometimes with people. And I was doing a consult with, um, one, one, uh, one guy and he was, he was super highly educated and he, he, he had his PhD and he's just, um, he was really besides his education, he was just even speaking to him like this guy's brilliant. And so, um, but he, he came to the exact conclusion that I did that like most things within the body have like a pendulum effect you know, like glycogen supercompensation, we deplete people. And then what happens, the body creates more room within the muscle tissue to store glycogen. And I kind of suspect that there's like, when you refill somebody, um, they get this like extra intramuscular water storage going on, you know, maybe it's probably a combination of glycogen and, um, you know, sodium and potassium and water and everything just gets stored within the muscle tissue. So it's like, then it's almost like you fill it up and then it's almost like it kind of, it almost kind of looks like it leaks out a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, and, and then you can't really regather it because you're not coming from that other extreme again, if that makes sense. Um, it's like, you have to come from that extreme point to be able to swing the pendulum back the other way. Um, so, um, generally principles that I do like to apply, um, Ideally, I would like to see food actively coming up going into the show. Um, like I, I it, that may mean a one day load. It may mean a two day load, three, four, even sometimes just a five day building load. Um, but I like food to continue this trend line upward. At, um, the only time I will do, sometimes I'll do a peak week where I call it um, uh, a back load with a cleanup day where I will load and then I will pull things back for one day. Um, and the only time I'll really do that is, um, I, I apologize if for your uh, listeners, if I'm throwing out too many terms that they may not be familiar with, but I kind of coined the term, uh, that I call a load look. Um, I, I made it up because I didn't really think there was anything else to describe what I was seeing. But, um, some people, when you carve them up, they look very tight, you know, like as they are actively carving up, they look tighter. And I would say that's most people. Um, but there's a, there's a certain subsect of people that have what I call a softer load look. Um, and, um, what I suspect is taking place is that, so, um, carbohydrate from, from carbohydrate consumption to, um, synthesis of glycogen, muscle glycogen. Um, it's not an instant process. And I think that some people have faster glycogen synthesis rates than others. Um, so somebody that has a hard load look, they eat they digest, you know, makes its way to the bloodstream, fast glycogen synthesis. Um, I think some people have slow glycogen synthesis rates where they eat, they digest. And then it's like the glucose may just, there's like this transient period where glucose may just be floating around in the interstitial space, um, waiting to be taken up. Um, and so, um, in those cases, I'll, I'll give like a, a back off day to be able to allow this like kind of clean up. Now, you know, for this spe specific peak week or even throughout the phases, is there specific timing protocols that you have for your clients? Like, hey, pre-workout, post-workout, or when you wake up, do this. Before you go to bed, do this. Is there anything like that that you typically prescribe to your clients? I, um, I will make recommendations, but um, never mandates. Uh, I, I will say like, hey, it's good practice to get a good meal you know, before you train, um, it's good practice to get intro workout carbs. It's good practice to, you know, eat, get a protein shake after eat within a few hours after that. Um, but I am always extremely flexible with these things. Um, so this is actually where I, I once again, I take, I, I take concepts. I, I, I like, I like a lot of other fields outside of bodybuilding as well. And I'm a firm believer that some principles apply to, um, all, uh, many disciplines. And, um, so like one example that, um, I, I'm a big fan of is that like, so I'll, I'm not familiar, like for those that aren't familiar with like economics, but like a lot of times it shows that like 
the more that a government tends to um, impose mandates upon specific uh, um, markets, you know, businesses or whatever, um, the more it tends to harm the economics of of that market. Um, The main reason being that the people that are not within a given business cannot know what is required for that business. You know what I mean? Like you're not there on a day-to-day basis running it. You can't exactly know what that, what impacts that is going to have when you start requiring things. And so um, I take the same approach with my clients. Um, I make so like rather than like so the government comes in and they're like hey we're gonna make businesses do this it's problematic but you know there are certain things that you could say like um you know good businesses like good business practice recommendations good businesses compensate their employees fairly you know what i mean um and so like there, there, there can be recommendations for good business practices. Um, and so I always say like, when it comes to the day to day specifics with my clients, um, I give recommendations for good business practices, but ultimately they're living their lives in their day. I'm not in their skin knowing, you know, what is best. Um, I could say it'd be good to eat this many carbs, uh, before your training, but you know, some people, according to their lives, they have to wake up and they have to go right to train. You know what I mean? And maybe pounding hundred grams of carbs immediately upon waking up and then going to train is not an ideal situation. Um, so I always give, and even in the gym, I do the same thing with training. I give them exercise recommendations. I give them, um, uh, rep recommendations, but I always tell them you have the ultimate final authority on if you want to change that exercise, if something else feels better, um, you know, if, if a rep, different rep range, you want to add a few more reps, we're going for that. You know, you have the final authority because ultimately you're in your skin, and you know, it works best. You know, I think there's nothing more powerful than giving clients autonomy through education. Sorry. I, I lost you on the first part of that. What was that? Sorry. So yeah, I don't, I think there's, there's nothing more powerful than giving your clients autonomy through education. And that's exactly what I think that is. And that just goes back to self-determination theory and almost allowing them to almost again what you're kind of done with yourself and your coaching career is right I'm going to see how this works if this works this becomes a part of what I do as a coach but still we still have that great and that's where we're all going to kind of be able to really improve upon ourselves and again it's almost like a trial and error process but I know there's a lot of coaches that we've talked to and it's very specific and I I always kind of I don't want to say raise a red flag but then I'm like damn like that's rigid. Like I, I get it because it's bodybuilding, but that's what I think a lot of people consider maybe the ugly of bodybuilding. Like, Hey, it's like, wake up, do this. And then, Hey, you got to do this, 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 and this. And then, Hey, now it's 12 o'clock. I got to have this. And that's where I think a lot of people get intimidated, maybe not by the sport of bodybuilding, but just that general lifestyle of, Hey, this is what it takes to be healthy. This is what it, this is what it takes to you know, just love life through fitness and exercise. But what you kind of described there, I think is a really sound uh, philosophy of just life in general. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really funny. I have a, um, a client that I worked with. Um, gosh, time flies. It's like 2017. His name's Valentin Tambosi. Um, and he lives in, uh, he lives in Austria and we've gotten to be good friends and he's turned out to be a really good coach himself. And, you know, I told him one of the times when we first started working together, it was like probably like the third email exchange. And he, he asked me some question. I don't even remember the specific question, but I remember my answer was, um, a large part of what I find most useful for my coaching has nothing to do with training or diet. Um, you know, it's like a lot of these things that I've learned in other areas and then I like kind of apply. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it, like, like that, I think that it's, um, you know, it was really interesting because when I, when I was, I'm, I'm less educated in economics than I am in like fitness and training, but when I was like reading, um, an, an economic text at one point and, I was reading some t- statistics about how like business, the freer the market generally, the, the more um, uh, flourishing a market will be. And, um, and uh, it kind of immediately pinged in my head about how um, I had noticed that when I would get more rigid with my clients, the failure rate always seemed to be higher. Um, and you know, it's like, there are certain things I need to like draw a line in the sand on like rate of loss. Right. Um, but you know, meal timing is not one of those things to like 
you know, go to war over. Um, like, and especially like, because like, okay, if somebody needs to train first thing in the morning, um, okay. Yeah. I can say eating hundred grams of carbs before training is best, but if they have to eat hundred grams of carbohydrates before training first thing and then go out, if they're having like stomach cramps or they feel bloated during the training, their session's not going to be very good. So it's like, um, you know, hundred grams of carbs before training is not best in that instance. And so like, that's where I need to give them the authority and, um, kind of like, kind of like, well, once again, economics, good, good bosses, right. They empower their employees below them to be like, Hey, I trust you to make these good decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and you know, interestingly enough, si side note, but like when I was working at the video store, <laughs> sorry, um, when I was working at the video store, um, I worked for one of the last video stores, like they hung on way longer than they should. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know, like family video. Um, oh. I, yeah. about, I thought you were going to say blockbuster. I was like, hold on. I can't hear I you. Think something, I thought it was, uh, I think it was blockbuster and Hollywood. Is you said Hollywood video or family video, family video. I've never heard of that one. I know it was Hollywood video. I've heard of family video. Family video is a huge thing in the North. Yeah. They, they literally just closed. <laughs> like if you want to know how long they held on, they, they just closed like last year. Like that. Um, now, so they were in a dying industry, of course. But um, when I was there, I did notice like a lot of their business practices were very good. Um, like it was no joke getting a job there to every employee that works there was given a two hour SAT style test. Um, like you had, and to be a manager, you had to score like a 90% on it. It was, it was not easy. And like, I was far removed from school and there was math in there too. And so I was like, man, I'm, I'm rusty with math. You know what I mean? And so, um, that, but then, um, they would do things like every employee in the store from the person, their first day, the day of their hire has the ability to solve whatever issue comes up with a customer. Um, if you need to give them free movies, you need to wipe away their late fees, whatever you need to do, you do it. Um, and then we can talk about it later if, you know, if it's, you know, that could have been done better. Um, it was, it was a great practice. You know what I mean? There was no, I'm not authorized to do this with a customer. There was no, you know, let me get my manager. It was, I'm going to take care of this for you. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it, it, it was very, I guess I would say a small thing, but it was very influential to me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, Hey, you know, every person, you know, you, they would hire a 19 year old who was just hired two days ago. And it's like, you don't need to get the manager. You handle this. You know what I mean? Um, you know, good practice in my opinion. Yeah. yeah I think go ahead, Adam. No, I was going to say that's like real life. Cause there's no, there's no, uh, somebody that's going to be there holding your hand, but you're going to have to figure it out there for yourself and either self-reflect or suffer the consequences, whatever choice that you, ch you choose. And I think life is the best, the best teacher at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I was managing there, it was like, you know, sometimes I would have this, you know, I would have a new employee and they would maybe, um, maybe they wouldn't give the customer as much as they should have gotten in a situation that was maybe our fault, or maybe they gave them too much, but you know, they were empowered to do that. And then afterwards we'd be like, Hey, you know, in the future, maybe you do it this way, or maybe you do it that way. And so it was a very much of a learning process. And it was, um, it was very interesting to me because even in like 2009, when I was doing that, I mean, Redbox was already kind of around, you know what I mean? And Netflix was like a new, newish thing. And so like vi video stores were kind of already on the way out, but family video at 2009 was still killing it. Like Blockbuster was like gone at that point and family video was still killing it. Like, um, they, they, I mean, I can't even tell you, we used to get so busy on like Friday and Saturday nights that it was like, it was like getting ready at a restaurant on a Friday or Saturday night rush. Like it was so busy. And I, I even remember, I was like, this is crazy. Like, I was like, I can't believe people are still renting movies like this. And you know, it was, yeah. And it was, um, they just had a lot of good practices that I still find that I use to this day in my coaching. So to wrap it up, let's, I want to be courteous of your time. Uh, one last quick question. What is some major things in the bodybuilding industry that you hope to lead the way out or you hope eventually gets discovered? Um, you know, this may sound a little, uh, you know, glum here, but I, unfortunately the thing that upsets me the most, I don't think can be changed. Um, so I guess the only thing that can change with it is awareness. Um, I think that any 
field or industry or entity that um, holds the power to cause to create good in someone's life um, or, or that people view as inherently good. That's an important factor too. If people view it as inherently good, um, it will most likely draw people with the best intentions, but it will also draw predators. Um, I mean, you know, people, I mean, not to like get too deep, but like, so, you know, like what happened with like the Catholic church, you know, it's like, there are, I'm sure there are, Ton, you know, tons of people in the Catholic church that have like amazing intentions and wanted to like do good work for communities and for people. And then you also get like these predators that are like, this is a great chance to, you know, exploit. Um, you even see it with like politicians, you know, I'm sure that there are politicians that are um, like, I want to do good public service and I want to, I want to help people, you know, and make things better for society. And then you know, you get a fair amount of politicians that are just crooks and predators. Um, and I can go down the, down the line. I mean, you even get that with like, uh, police, you know, you, you get the majority of cops are like, I want to make my community better and I want to do this. And then, you know, a few police are going to be predators and bodybuilding coaching is the same way. You get a lot of coaches that are, you know, great people. And they're like, I enjoy helping people and I want to help people find their discipline and push themselves. And some bodybuilding coaches are just straight up predators. Um, and it's like, I think the only thing you can do, you know, you can't change that. You can't like ever stop predators from seeking out these positions. Um, the only thing you can do is like have people be more aware that you can't just accept that somebody's intentions are good. You can't just accept that somebody is good because they have decided to take up a certain position. Um, and so it's like, you need to be aware of like, if anything seems fishy, I mean, I've just seen so many, so much crazy stuff. I mean, I'm pretty liberal when it comes to PED use. I'm kind of like whatever a person wants to use, that's their choice. Um, but I've seen so many coaches that remove that choice and they'll say, Hey, you need these supplements here take, you know, they'll just give them a handful of pills and not tell them what it is. And I've seen so many coaches don't even get me started on the male coaches that like exploit their female clients and ask for nude progress photos and stuff like that. So my, my, the thing I, I want people to be aware of is like, look out for predatory behavior because it's, it's prevalent in the bodybuilding industry, just like it is in all industries that have like a, a self-improvement or help people or help society. It's going to draw, it's going to draw people that are predatory and you just need to be on the lookout for it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, as you said, the only way to, I guess, bring that to light is bring into awareness. And honestly, just hearing this conversation and hearing a lot of what your philosophies are as a coach, should almost brighten that out that, Hey, we're, we're flexible. We're all We give autonomy. We empower, we educate. And all of those things will lead to great success, not only in this sport, but I think in out other aspects of your life. And if you have a, a just even a, a slightest whiff of, Hey, I, this just seems off. It's probably just trust your gut and go a different route. Because as you, I, we've, Chris and I, we've seen a lot, um, even with, like you said, we kind of talked about the higher education individuals. I think a lot of them, they, they want to hold on to that ego and they want to hold on to what they actually believe in. And once you have that, that's a huge problem. And I think, again, coaching is a two-way street. We have to, more importantly, involve the client and have them almost drive the process because at the end of the day, they know their body, as you said, Cliff. And we are the the scientist, we are, you know, the expert, in, so to say, um, and we can make those changes. But at the end of the day, it's that individual that's going through that. And we can only, you know, help push them and drive them to that uh, the success. Yeah, yeah, very well said. I, I think it's, uh, and, and, you know, it just gets down to the matter of like, um, at the end of the day, both the coach and the client need to remember that they're like, they both have the same goal. You know, it's like the goal is you want to do the best on stage. And then it's just, you need to actually like, I'm not the risk of sounding cheesy, but it's like, you got to have some teamwork. You know, it's like, you need to, you need to come to terms with like, what is the best route then to achieve that objective? And um, if either side, the client or the coach starts acting like the boss, then usually you've got like a broken relationship there and it shouldn't be that way. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I do think that it is the coach's responsibility to like empower. Um, and when I say empower, it's like, um, your clients should get stronger over time. Um, you know, I, I mentioned like 
I work with some clients that I've been working for for six, seven, eight years. I do a lot less for them than I had to do in the beginning. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't, they don't need as much. I mean, usually it's like, boom, here's your plan. Let's go get it. You know how this goes. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I, at, at a certain point I become more of just like, uh, the objective eye, you know what I mean? Because it's hard to remain objective in prep. I mean, brutally hard at anybody that's ever done it. <laughs> and so, um, you know, oftentimes they know, and they'll even sometimes suggest changes to me and, um, you know, and I'll say that sounds good or like, Hey, I would maybe speed things up a little bit or slow it down or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, as a coach, I, I can tell you, um, an empowered and educated client will bring great results for you as a coach. So it's like, don't, don't get too bogged down in who's like calling the shots. If that makes sense. Yeah. Go ahead. Let our followers list our followers. <laughs> let, let them know where they can find you on Instagram, your book, website, et cetera. Um, yeah. Um, the best place is just my Instagram. If you want to get to know the most about me, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, at CW team Wilson, T E A M Wilson. Um, and, uh, if you want to get a hold of me, um, the, uh, my email, uh, is, uh, info dot team Wilson BB at gmail.com. Um, and so those would be the best two places to, to get a hold of me. Uh, my books on Amazon, it's just called, uh, bodybuilding the complete contest prep handbook. And, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate you guys time. I really, I, this was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And it was a, it was a pleasure to have you on. I know your schedule is extremely busy right now, but it's always very interesting to get, uh, an, an individual's perspective that is not the traditional go to school, follow these evidence-based practices, because that's not always what it's about. As, as you said, it's, it's so much more, and we really appreciate you sharing that knowledge with us. So other than that, thank you guys. If you guys have any questions, go ahead, leave it in the comments. This will be on YouTube, iTunes, and you know where to find your boy Cliff Wilson now. This was All the Smoke on Bodybuilding and Everything.